Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Justin Wilbury. My name is Perry Mason Wilbury. And we're live on tape from Tallahassee and Madrid. In 1988, the surprise word spread about a new supergroup, one that simultaneously did and did not trade off the fame of its participants. The Travelling Wilburys was made up of The Voice, The Lyricist, The Young Gun, The Producer, and most importantly, The Beatle, who seemed to be the one driving the entire enterprise. Uh, Over three decades later, The Travelling Wilburys seems to have gone down quite well in history and is remembered fondly. It's a curious junction uh, in George's career, though, isn't it? Uh, is, is it a surprising thing that he did the Wilburys? Uh, I think so. I mean, if you put it in context, uh, he's coming off the back of Cloud Nine, which is a big commercial reemergence. Um, you, you would expect him to capitalize on that, maybe have a follow up album, maybe have a tour. Uh, but he goes off and... Uh, forms a supergroup with Bob Dylan and Roy Orbison, as you do. Uh, yeah. And, you know, what we're going to tease out uh, across two episodes on The Travelling Wilburys is exactly what you said. George is the most successful uh, out of the five going in. His stock is certainly, from a solo George point of view, at an all-time high. And 88 is the year of the Beatles on CD and all sorts of reissues and yeah. things. You know, everything, uh, 87, 88 is Beatles on CD. And he's... Uh, you know, he, he seems to be the only one out of the five who doesn't really come out of it uh, making hay while the sun shines. You know, the others do quite well on the far side of the Wilburys. Yeah, I think it, it, that's right. Uh, you know, he's coming in, he's all coming off the back of an American number one single. Yep. Um, you know, he is absolutely top of his game again he's with warners uh at this stage which is a record label he's very comfortable with um he's coming out of a sort of hiatus um he's outselling paul ringo's on the on the out uh you know uh so yes you he he George, I suppose, never does what you expect him to do. This is true. And he, as you say, has this double whammy of being at a really successful high point in his career and being a Beatle. And so you get to do what you want. And he decides to do this. Um, so let's try and uh, pick it apart because there is this sort of legend of the Wilburys that, uh, you know, George himself was quite happy to uh, to propagate. Um, but it's it's it kind of starts as a, a name, doesn't it? 
Yes, uh, and we, you know, we'll come on to this, but I think a lot of the, the the sort of the legend is just that. I think there's a lot of artifice uh, that goes beyond the made-up names. Um, but supposedly, the name comes from the Cloud Nine sessions, where where he and Jeff come up with this term: something's not quite right. They say we'll bury or we'll bury this in the mix, uh, so that becomes, you know, a Wilbury becomes the name for a, a glitch or a technical. Uh, problem and um, it, it kind of comes from that that, that George suggested at one point trembling Wilbury yeah. um, as a joke name and then it became traveling Wilburys uh, supposedly uh, at um, after royal a royal intervention. Yeah, now apparently heir to the throne, uh, Prince Charles is actually responsible for naming the traveling slash trembling slash traveling Wilburys. But again, this seems Supposedly. to be part of George's love of uh, obfuscation of kind of muddying the waters a little bit and, and, and a good joke. It could be true. It's probably not true. Oh, it's bound to be true. The way George tells it, it's it's absolutely got to be true. I mean, so this was know, after, knowing Prince Charles like I do, it does sound like a Prince yeah, Charles thing. Yeah, does Charles sound like him? Um, so this is after a Prince's Trust concert in 1987, and George said that you know they're they're meeting Prince Charles after that, and he he stops beside uh, uh, George and Jeff and said, "You chaps work very well together. Why don't you form a group called the Traveling Wilburys?" And George said, "Well, it seemed a bit strange at the time. We had no such plans, but later we thought, well, if he likes it, maybe we should use that name." So yeah. it's entirely, entirely uh, uh, the result of Prince Charles coming up with the name. Yes, and that's obviously uh, a, a, a lie. It's kind of got that Monty Python <laughs> preposterousness that George likes. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so yeah, this notion of you know we'll bury them in the mix, the Wilburys. Um, there's also uh, you know some some other early mentions. Uh, it, maybe it wasn't even a you know a, a turn of phrase. It was also a guitar pick that uh, like George is knocking around this notion of the traveling Wilburys as an entity before they even exist. Yes, I mean George. George, if we know anything about George, is his kind of Monty love of Monty Python and and his particularly his love of a pun, uh, never letting a good joke or a bad joke uh, die. Um, so he seems to have followed on from from uh, this this sort of we bury it in the mix uh notion to producing little guitar picks so he's he's got the merchandise before he's got the band <laughs> um and there's an engineer called uh bill Batrell, uh who refers to uh in early um uh, late 87 they're working on a mix and the, and george hands him one of these guitar picks and said, you know, I guess we're going to have a group or something. So he's, he's got this name from late 87 and he's, he's working on the idea. Yeah. And you know, the, the whole thing, the whole thread running through all of this is that the traveling Wilburys is the will of George, you know, he is willing it into existence and, you know, at best it's a great success. At worst, it's almost you feel it feels like a parent, like, you know, we're having a good time, aren't we? There's a bit of that that yeah. runs through the yeah. traveling Wilburys a little bit. Um, yeah, so he, you know, he has this name, he has these guitar picks, and he mentions uh mentions the 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 notion of the traveling Wilburys publicly for the first time in February 1988 on uh, a syndicated radio interview with, uh, on, the, on the American uh, show Rockline. And I know that you love George's Rockline interview. You think this is the best George interview that everyone should stop what they're doing now. <laughs> well, maybe wait to yeah. the end of the episode and then go and listen yeah. to the Rockline interview. Ab- absolutely. This is, this is a chap called Bob Coburn and it was a phone-in 
set up. Uh, so it's a syndicated show. So you could phone in um, from anywhere uh, in, in the US. And uh, anybody who got on air got assigned uh, George Harrison LP. And you got to nice. ask George a question. And th- this is the most revealing interview. So he starts off, supposedly he, he Jeff Lynn is there as well. There, This is a promotion for Clyde Nine. And supposedly uh, George and Jeff had been uh, slightly refreshed. You know, they've mm. been, been at the at the minibar beforehand. <laughs> and the first people that call in just get the sarky, surly, really quite rude George. I mean, you would you would just be so upset if you'd called at the beginning and he he he, he terrible to these people but as the interview as the interview goes on he becomes quite uh revealing and quite morose and but at one point um Coburn says you know and uh, you know what what are you going to do now how are you going to follow up Clyde Nine and he says what I'd really like to do next is to do an album with me and some of my mates it's this new group I've got in mind it's called the Traveling Wilburys Hmm. and uh, uh you know Coburn does not pick up on this at all you know george is saying specifically i'd like to do an album with them and then later on we can do do our albums again and coburn just completely moves past it i don't i don't i don't blame him though for moving past it because you know in a parallel universe it's just a forgotten notion it's just a joke thing you know he yeah he, he runs in this kind of slipstream of answering questions george you know what's real what's not you know what's true yeah. what's a bit of a joke um so you know with the benefit of hindsight you know here we are all these years later going that that's that's panning for goals that's, that's what he mentioned that, it. That, that's what that's what he mentioned i mean the, but the other thing that's very interesting about the Rockline interview is how often George talks about Bob Dylan mm. and how much sort of support he gives to Dylan. You know, he kind of just referring back to everything that Dylan has done and, and you know, what a great lyricist Dylan is and what a great songwriter. George has this habit in, in the way that other people quote poetry or verses from the Bible. George quote, quotes Dylan lyrics. He does, and he yeah. spends He spends quite a lot of time in this interview uh, referring to Bob Dylan, who was not having a good 1980s. Let's be honest about that, you know? No, and we, we don't want to incur the wrath of the, the, the Dylanologists on us who will tell us, but actually no. we haven't heard the, the alternate infidels or whatever we were supposed to be listening to today. But, you know, if you look purely on stats, uh, the, the albums that Bob had out at the time, Empire Burlesque came out in June 1985 and it didn't make the US top 30. Knocked Out Loaded uh, came out in July 86. That didn't make the US top 50. Uh, you think that's his worst album, don't you? Knocked Out Loaded. I, oh, yeah. I think I, I remember rushing to the shops to buy that and take it home and just pay. It's just, uh, you know, any anything with a children's choir is never a good, uh, <laughs> it's never, never a good bet. There, mm. there, there's maybe one, there's one great track, uh, Brownsville Girl. But yeah, Brownsville Girl's good. I thought you were going to say there's one great album with a children's choir and I'm trying to. I, did, I didn't no, know you liked no, The no. Wall. Um, no. but there, there's, there's something we've discussed about in our lives before, which is the curse of 1986. 1986 is a very odd year for the 60s vanguard of musicians. That There's a yeah. lot of them that are um, at a low ebb commercially, maybe creatively, depending on which side of the press-to-play fence that you're on. But there's certainly something happening in 86. The only person who kind of emerges is Paul Simon with Graceland in 86. But Dylan's having a hard time Paul's not really the the man locked in that he normally expects to be. Um, you know, the Stones release, Stones, yeah, dirty work. Um, it's it's all a bit wonky. I think I think there aren't many of that 
vanguard that era have a good mid 80s you know yeah. steve steve when steve winwood and paul simon are probably the only uh the only two i can think of yeah i think you know what, what we'll kind of go to see is the traveling wilburys is almost a way it's almost like a primer to try and show these folks how to redefine themselves in the late 80s and and have a you know try and play to the old house and also have a little bit of a contemporary yes. sheen as well um yeah. so that's kind of what we're going to uh, what we're going to see and playing amateur psychologist for it for, for a moment, you know, George is saying, I want to form a group. I want to form a group. And, you know, listeners to the podcast will might remember that he was already in a group. And is this, uh, you know, is he trying to rerun, you know, something that's going on in his psyche about the fabs to show how a successful group should be, or that he never got to lead the Beatles uh, in a way that he wanted to, or is any of that important, really? Like, are the Travelling Wilburys the anti-Beatles, in a way, you know? Okay, we'll, we'll develop that theory. We'll develop that theory. <laughs> um, I think one of the, one of the, uh, the characteristics of George George's sort of post-fame, uh, so even when he was in the Beatles, he was saying, you know, I didn't really, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't really want the fame. I really didn't want, uh, you know, all the adulation. He quite likes the money. You know, <laughs> likes that side of it. Um, but he, he's always saying, you know, I, I just wanted to be a guitar player. I just wanted to be in a band and, and, and to make music. And he's constantly sort of referencing that. Um, you know, in, in the early 70s, he wants to be in a band with John Lennon. He sort of floats that idea and he gets knocked back by Lennon. He thinks it's quite embarrassing to have George making that kind of overture. Mm. Um, he... He, he is a sort of guitar player for hire. You know, he, he works on a lot of other people's material, albums and songs, and he starts his own record label. He really tries to replicate what Apple tried to do in terms mm. of Dark Horse. Um, he, he's collaborative in nature. Um, and I think this is, this is the sort of ultimate expression of that. I, I think you're right. He is he is a good person to have in a collaboration. You know, when we look at the people who are in the Travelling Wilburys, and of course the people in the Travelling Wilburys are, you know, Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan, Jeff Lynne, Tom Petty. Uh, these are very forceful kind of personalities. And although you could argue Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty technically weren't solo artists, they were definitely people who had marked their own territory within the bands yeah. that they were in as de facto leaders essentially in a, you know, it's my way or the highway type leaders of yeah. bands. Yeah. Um, so you, you kind of wonder, is George a little bit naive sometimes with this notion of, well, let's all just hang around and play guitars and collaborate. That's how bands work. Cause you know, life isn't quite as uh, straightforward as that sometimes. Well, there's maybe, you think there's this idea that he's trying to get back to the way the Beatles were before 1962, that they yeah. were, kind of just hanging around in Paul's house. But were they ever like that? Because they were always trying to get successful, move ahead, get to the next thing, do whatever worked. You know, there wasn't, no. uh, I think what he was trying to get away from was, you know, the stuff that really wound him up, which was the suits and the business people and the interventions. The Yeah. The other thing to bear in mind around this time is the relationship with the other Beatles and mm. the relationship with the MI and the, the lawsuits that are going on. So he's, you, you know, 
uh, we're, we're coming up to the release of the, the Beatles catalog on CD, but there, there are still all of these lawsuits going on in the background. Yeah. Um, you know, John isn't there. Yoko is reasonably active at, at, at this point in the late eighties. Yeah. Um, you know, so we've got the, there's also Lennon the rock and roll hall of fame stuff as well. There's Paul the rock and roll hall of fame. Yep. So, so there's, there's still the, uh, there's still aggravation, um, around the Beatles. So he's maybe stepping away from that as well. He's, mm. he's, but it is an expression, I think, of his um, star power at the time. Uh, yeah. But he's suddenly from nowhere, from absolutely nowhere, he's back at the top of the US charts. Um, no one would have put money on that. Yeah. Well, let's let's go into a bit of background in terms of, you know, the five people that made up the Travelling Wilburys about how their paths had crossed uh, in the preceding years and how it uh, how it got to that point in 1988. Um, you know, the, the, the obvious first combo is, uh, you know, George Harrison and Bob Dylan. And we have talked about this before, that they originally met up in Woodstock uh, in the late 60s and uh, the, uh, the the May 1970 session is currently available on CD after all these years. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's there's the Bob influence on All Things Must Pass, the co-write of uh, I'd Have You Anytime. Um, so, you know, they're already, you know, paired off <laughs> many years they, earlier. They, they, they are. And I mean, I, I think I, I do get the sense that particularly for John and perhaps also for Paul, George's relationship with Dylan was, was a sort of, source of envy you know Lennon in particular could never I think transcend the fact that he was John Lennon you know to to get Mm. to the point where he could have a relationship where he could step outside that Lennon uh, persona um, and allow Dylan to step outside his persona but but George seems to have been able to uh, navigate that and um, one of my favorite phrases is in the Rob Sheffield book Dreaming the Beatles where he says that in the Beatles divorce uh, George got custody of Bob Dylan yeah. Um, and, and I think that's true. He, he, he cultivated that relationship. Um, and I remember there was an interview where somebody said to George, you know, were you not slightly in awe mm. of, of working with Bob Dylan? And George said, well, maybe he was slightly in awe of working with me, which is obviously tongue yeah. in cheek, but, yeah. but he, di- he didn't have that same ego issue with Dylan that, uh, I mean, he clearly admires him. We talked about him quoting the lyrics, yeah. you know, um, he, he admired him. He respected him, uh, but that didn't get in the way of the friendship or or a productive relationship. Yeah, and I think you know it always seemed to me that uh, Bob and George, you know, there never seemed to be any kind of angle with their friendship. They they had a, no. a you know totally reasonable back and forth, and so by the time that friendship rolls into the eighties, and um, you know. Uh, George is, you know, as you say, quoting Dylan all the time, likes to play Dylan in his spare time. And, you know, the most obvious place for George to record a Bob Dylan song in 1987 was where? Uh, That was the soundtrack of Porky's Revenge. It's a very George type movie. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Now, now, for some of the younger viewers, Porky's was a series of films in the 80s that um, uh, people would dare each other to get out of video clubs. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's so bizarre that, yeah. that, that, that George Harris tries. So he he, uh, he records a song called I Don't Want to Do It, which he'd done an earlier version of during the All Things Must Pass sessions. And uh, Dave Edmonds was the uh, producer for that. And then uh, Dave Edmonds introduces George to Jeff. 
So what a momentous! Uh, that's, where that, <laughs> that's where I'll take over. <laughs> well, I, I always, I always think Dave Edmonds must be quite annoyed that he wasn't sort of either asked to produce Cloud Nine or asked to be in the Wilburys. But he did; he was instrumental in getting them together. So. Dave Edmonds, I think, is a fascinating figure. He's he's recently retired from um, music uh, a few years ago, and as you say, he produced this song at the end of November '84. I don't want to do it uh, for the Porky soundtrack, and he, you know he, he he had a very successful run. Dave Edmonds he uh, had hits obviously like you know, I hear you knocking, and he did Elvis Costello's Girls Talk, and he was in the band Rock Pile with Nick Lowe, and he was one of these kind of producer, writer, players, performers, um, but. You could also argue that he never kind of crossed over into the big leagues the way Jeff made his hit no. for the big leagues in the in the 80s. And what's happening in Jeff Linland in the early 80s is that, uh, you know, Jeff is tired of the ELO life. Can you imagine being tired of ELO? If you're tired of ELO, uh, you I'm, must be tired of life. And I was biting, biting my lip. I wasn't going was to make a comment. But, but uh, um, in, in, in 1983, the year of Jeff's uh, and ELO's Beatles Forever and uh, Secret Messages album, uh, Jeff is trying to find a sideline, I know, in um, record production. And one of the people Jeff produces with is Dave Edmonds. So there's uh, Dave Edmonds puts out an album in 83 called Information. And the lead single off that, which is his last kind of big US hit, is Slipping Away, is written and produced by Jeff. And Jeff also produces um, some tracks on the follow-up album, Riff Raff in 84. And he, he, he wrote about three songs on that as well. So Jeff is diversifying into production. He's kind of finding his feet for that successful run he's about to tap into in the late 80s. And he's, he's learning producer tricks, I guess. He's learning how to disappear behind the console in a way he couldn't with ELO. And he's learning how to manage artists, you could argue. But it is Dave Edmonds who uh, makes the connection between George and Jeff. And it's at some point in these sessions that he has a, Dave Edmonds has a dinner with Jeff. And at the end of it, Jeff recounts, Dave Edmonds says to him, oh, by the way, George Harrison told me he wants to get in touch with you. And Jeff, as a Beatles head, is happy, I would say. It's a nice end to the, end to the dinner. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah, so by the way, um, so on the extras... I nearly, I nearly yeah. forgot to tell you. I nearly forgot. Yeah. <laughs> on the extras of the Living in the Material World documentary, uh, Jeff talks about meeting George for the first time. Obviously, he was cut out of the main film because he was too interesting. Um, yes. But uh, he, he talks about uh, Dave Edmonds setting up this date and he goes, Jeff goes up to Friar Park and realises straight away that him and George can get on. Uh, famously, because George sticks him in a boat and sails him around the grottos of Friar Park, and uh, you hang on with your bum, is what Jeff tells us. Um, oh, to be a to be a millionaire millionaire rock star. Um, so they have a very uh, you know in 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 what they call in the movies foreshadowing. The first appearance of George and Jeff is kind of ominous, isn't it? Is it? Is this the heartbeat eighty six? This we're is heartbeat eighty six. We're talking about. You don't okay. watch it. You don't watch your video of Heartbeat '86 every every I, weekend. I, no? do, you, do you have it on VHS somewhere? It's on. Uh, it was. It was. Um, so Heartbeat '86 was a gig in Birmingham in 1986 for uh, Children's Hospital uh, Services in uh, the Midlands in the UK, and it was designed in the wake of you know we were in the post Live Aid era that it would be yeah. a charity gig celebrating all the the great and the good of you know 20 years of Birmingham music, and Bev Bevan. The drummer from ELO uh, was the person kind of primarily driving some of this. So you had Roy Wood uh, turning up, you had 
uh, you know, members of Slade. You had Robert, Robert, Plant, Robert Plant. Robert Plant rocked up to this gig. And, Denny Lane. And Denny Lane was there. There was, Lane was there. There was supposed to be a reunion of the move, but it didn't happen. Um, but the headliners were ELO doing their first UK gig in about five years and also pretty much their last UK gig. And because uh, they're about to fall apart spectacularly. Yeah. And as I said, in a point of foreshadowing, right at the end of the gig, uh, when ELO are doing their final track, George brings on, or Jeff brings on George Harrison, as if to say, yeah. meet my new wife. But this is my this is my new best friend. Yeah. Bye, Bev. Yeah. yeah. See you later. Um, and so, you know, this Heartbeat show was recorded and edited for TV. It's on YouTube. You can you can go check it out and have a look at it. People are having a pretty good day out and they're all the more happy that uh, George appears. George is appearing at lots of these kind of Princess Trust charity gigs. He's not a total shrinking violet at this time. It's it's sort of this, I suppose, really marks the start of his return to the limelight. Mm. Uh, you know, this gig and then the Princess Trust gig uh, comes later in the uh, middle of 1987. So this is him emerging back into the spotlight. Yeah. So after, uh, you know, ELO finally go into the ground, uh, Jeff goes off and works with George. The first uh, track that they start working on is in January 87 and turns out to be When We Was Fab. So I can't imagine how happy uh, Jeff Lynn is (laughs) 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 writing and recording When We Was Fab with with, uh, George Harrison. Jeff says, hey, or George says to Jeff, do you know any Beatle tricks, Jeff? (laughs) Jeff goes, I sure do. Um, So those those guys are set up and, uh, you know, the, the Jeff and George um, production dynamic is very important for what subsequently becomes the Travelling Wilburys. The other interesting relationship that's happening at the same time in the mid 80s is that between Bob Dylan and Tom Petty. Um, yes. And I always found this diversion. And when we say Tom Petty, we really mean Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And the Heartbreakers, yeah. And... Yeah, this is a, a, a you know for a, a band like the Heartbreakers who you know were having a good commercial run, um, for them to kind of take a left turn and decide, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to be Bob Dylan's backup band for a significant period of time. It's it's wild, isn't it? Yeah, but it's Bob Dylan. It is Bob so, Dylan. It is Bob Dylan. You know, um, so they, they first get together, I think, in in 1985 at uh, Farmaid. So that that seems to me to be a a, a sort of a a temporary or, or, or it's just a, it's fortuitous and they get together. It's one gig, but mm. they clearly work well together. And, and Petty and the Heartbreakers are that sort of steeped in American rock and roll. They can play anything. Mm. Um, so they, they, they embark on, on a tour with Dylan, uh, which has Tom Petty as the opening act, or sometimes actually they, they tour with uh, Roger McGuinn as the opening act. And then you get Tom Petty and then you get, Bob Dylan comes on with Petty and the Heartbreakers. Um, Stevie Nicks turns up at one point, starts hanging out on the tour and coming on stage with with, with the band as well. Um, Dylan is throwing, Dylan is sort of re, reinventing himself or, tr- or really struggling at this point to reconnect, I think, with his his muse. Yeah. One of the, the interesting features of the Tom Petty tour is how often Dylan will go back to old 1950s rock and roll songs, obscure rock and roll songs that, you know, Mike Campbell has said, you didn't know what he was going to ask you to play from one gig to the next. Um, There's great songs, So Long, Good Luck and Goodbye, which he used to use as the opening song. Um, You know, so 
Teddy and the Heartbreakers are a very good fit. Um, they tour Europe in late 1987. They do a big gig in October 87 at Wembley and George makes a guest appearance uh, for the encore at that show. So there you have three of them on stage uh, together, three people who would become the Wilburys. Yes. And uh, I think Dylan and Petty also tour in Australia as well. They, they recorded a TV special down there, which is also available on YouTube, a live concert. They they do. They and do. You, you um, can't help but feel that there's a Dylan Petty uh, bootleg box set somewhere in the, in the pipeline they, they, at Columbia there Records. Are a, yeah, there are a lot of very well recorded uh, bootleg sets, live sets. But this is this is the period in which Bob is wearing his black leather waistcoat and his <laughs> fingerless leather gloves. And, well, you know, what was that movie? Streets of, or, um, Heart, Hearts, Hearts of Fire. Fire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he just nothing. He, he, he's really, as, as you were saying earlier, that, that kind of mid-80s period, all of these sort of 60s rock royalty are just slightly lost. They don't but know it, what to do. It, they're they're all getting great, to uh, a certain age yeah. as well, you know, and there's no roadmap for what, what do you do when you hit... 40. Well, I was a you know a teenager in the late eighties, and obviously I was a, you know very into you know sixties music, and the whole culture at that time um, was kind of you know these guys are so old they're in their forties this is a joke, yeah. typified yeah. by there's a nineteen eighty nine cover story on the Rolling Stones in Q which says you know lock up your granddaughters it's the Rolling Stones average age forty four so yeah. you know it's 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 we now can see that these people were kind of at a vanguard that they were you know we, we don't notice other bands getting old we don't notice you two in their 60s these days because these guys kind of knocked da- that down you know yes usually by the you know, up to this point by the time you got to be 40 or 45 you were in vegas or you were doing yeah. you know the, the cabaret circuit uh you weren't making new music and i i think that's everybody got slightly lost until they find their way out into the 90s. So for Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, they were a band who, although they, you know, emerged circa 77 with their debut album, they 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 always doffed their cap to the 60s. And I, I think they relished yeah. the opportunity to, 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 to work on their chops as Bob Dylan's backing band, as mercurial uh, uh, an enterprise as that can turn out to, to be. Um, but again, it, it, it meant that, you know, you know, game recognizes game and Dylan, I think, respected their abilities and saw what they could do and obviously forged a friendship with uh, Tom Petty because I think, you know, when the Wilburys comes out, sometimes Tom seems like, well, he's a bit young. <laughs> he's, you know, yes, he doesn't, yes. he seems of a different generation. Um, but Dylan and Petty are obviously quite close. And indeed, when the, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers reemerge in 87, it's with a single co-written with Bob Dylan. Yes, they, they, they do a single. It's really a Bob Dylan single, Band of the Hand, comes out. And then Jam and Me is yeah. uh, a, a Campbell. You know, it's not a great song. I mean, there, there's, there's <laughs> neither, neither of those songs are particularly good. And it's interesting that Dylan at this point, you know, there aren't more writing collaborations with Petty. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, the Jam and Me song seems to be a riff that, that Campbell and Petty had that Dylan threw a few lyrics at. Um, Really, Dylan is not firing on all cylinders at this point. I, I mean, I'm kind of fond of Jam and Me, but it, uh, it, you know, it does have references to Saturday Night Live and Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo in it, which is it's obviously just a song written, written for you. It's written for it, written it is, for and it has this odd kind of trying to be contemporary Cars type video attached to it. But uh, you know, yeah. at that point, I, I, you know, you could argue that 
Tom and the Heartbreakers, you know, they were 10 years into their career and you're kind of at a crossroads at that point where, you know, are you going to choose diminishing returns or are you going to have some kind of grand leap forward and, and go the distance? And we you know with the album that came out in 87 from them, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, it, it wasn't really any sign of a grand leap forward. It, it was possible that it could have been diminishing returns for Tom yeah. Petty that, you know, the, the, the big albums of Damn the Torpedoes and that were, were behind them. Um, so, you know, you know, what we'll see is that, you know, Full Moon Fever is, is on the horizon, on the far side of the Wilburys, but we'll come to that in, in, in due course. Um, so, you know, Petty's kind of at this point in his career about figuring out what to do, um, which kind of leads us into the fact that Jeff Lynne goes into the Tom Petty orbit at this time as well, because, as we said, eventually Full Moon Fever is what's going to happen. And, and the seeds of Full Moon Fever predate the Wilburys. Yes, yes. So this is, is this is Tom Petty's. I suppose this must be his first solo album. Yeah, uh, at least in name. So you know, most of the Heartbreakers turn up at some point, um, but he's got Jeff Lynne on board as the producer, and you've got to sort of wonder: Is Tom Petty thinking, uh, you know, a solo career is is maybe what's going to get me through the eighties? One mm. one of the big other things that that we shouldn't underestimate is the introduction of. of of digital production style. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, this is something that where Paul comes slightly adrift um, on Press to Play, although I, it's an album that I, I do admire. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you don't hold it in, yeah. in, in the same regard. Um, but, you know, the, these, these people were very familiar with the studio. They were quite capable of producing their own material. And then suddenly, everything changes with the introduction of, uh, you know, it wasn't punk that killed off the dinosaurs. It was the Fairlight, you know, it was the digital, <laughs> yeah. digital production. Um, and you think, well, this is part of negotiating the way forward is to get an ex- external producer to come in. And although Jeff Lane is not uh, kind of a hotshot young producer, he's sufficiently au fait with, mm. with sort of the studio technique, but also of, of an age where he has a certain empathy with the likes of Tom Petty. So he, he can help nega- navigate through that, uh, yeah, well, that production well, issue as well. What you kind of learn about Jeff is he's quite happy doing the, the bits of the job that many musicians don't like, which is sitting behind the desk for about yeah. six hours trying to get something to work. And even, you know, I'm thinking of a story later on when, you know, Paul is working on Flaming Pie with Jeff and Paul recounts how Jeff is just a stickler for detail just to try and nail stuff down, whereas other people would walk away, you know. Um, So, you know, if you're not paying close attention to to Tom Petty's career, you might notice that Full Moon Fever is a solo album and not a Heartbreakers album, but that is important because it comes together differently and the heartbreakers drift in yes. and out of it, but it is essentially a solo album where he gets to do what he wants. Um, you know, the other person who goes into Jeff Lynn's orbit as Jeff moves into his producer for higher mode is Roy Orbison. And, you know, Roy Orbison is at um, another inflection point in his career where he's trying to figure out the next great leap forward. And, Roy Orbison hadn't put out a record since um, an album called Laminar Flow in 1979. What a record that is. Uh, I mean, what a record sleeve. What a record what, sleeve that if, is. If you don't know the sleeve of um, George, uh, George Orbison, Roy Orbison's Laminar <laughs> Flow, 
uh, dig it out. It's quite spectacular. Um, the album itself is very much of 1979. It's recorded in Muscle Shows. It has the disco song up front trying yeah. to get Roy a disco hit. And it kind of has a, you know, a thick session heavy studio sound. It, it doesn't really work. And, you know, Roy kind of floats away for a few years. I mean, he's busy and he's working and he's regarded, but there's he's not at the, the vanguard of anything. No, I mean during that that period of the early eighties, you know, there's some there was there was a there's a very good documentary um, about that period, and uh, you know he's he's appearing on these terrible uh, English uh, you know variety shows with, mm. with awful backup bands and in wide lapeled uh, jackets and and TikToky drums and just terrible. Oh, just I mean it's a very uh, dispiriting thing, and this is what I was saying. The, the roadmap up to this point is you have your hits, you have your career, you hit 40, and then you're relegated to the cabaret circuit. And that's very much where he was sort of marooned at that point. Um, and, you know, in late, uh, in the second half of 87, uh, the sessions begin for Mystery Girl, which is due to be Roy Orbison's uh, return to form comeback album. And, uh, you know, when... George's Cloud Nine drops, you know, Jeff Lynn is obviously seen as a successful producer and he gets drafted yeah. in as one of the producers and co-writers um, for Mystery Girl. And uh, with Tom Petty, uh, uh, Orbison and Lynn all together, they write the the hit You've Got It, which, you know, will come out post-Travelling Wilburys. Um, but the other thing that happens to solidify Roy Orbison at this point in time is uh, the concert of Black and White Night, which to my mind at the time was really influential in how highly regarded he was. And A Black and White Night yeah. was a live concert recorded at the Coconut Grove uh, at the Ambassador Hotel in Hollywood, California on the 30th of September, 1987. And I'm guessing a lot of people listening to us here today will have seen it. Uh, Roy is backed up by a star-studded um, uh, band with Bruce Springsteen and Elvis Costello. And who else is there? I think it's Katie Lyne. Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown, Katie Lyne, Jennifer Warnes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but no Wilburys. No Wilburys are in the crowd at a black and white night, which is interesting. No Jeff. No Jeff, no yeah. Jeff yet. He, Jeff hadn't arrived in, 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 in Roy's garden yet. And, um, you know, that was recorded at the end of September 87. It was broadcast in January 88. Interestingly enough, I read the day after it was recorded, there was an earthquake and parts of the hotel collapsed in on the master tapes. Uh, but uh, So it was almost lost to the ages, but the tapes were recovered and fixed. And so we still got to get uh, a black and white night. Um, but as we get to the end of 87, you know, the big hit is Cloud Nine and it's at number one in the US at the start of uh, 88 um, with Got My Mindset New is, is the big smash hit single off that. And no. I don't think anyone expected at the start of 87 that uh, George Harrison would be a number one billboard US star at the start of 88. No, the last the last number one by, by a Beatle. Isn't that right? Uh, did, Spice, did, did, did Spies Like Us get to number one? No. Let me just check uh, my Rolodex here. Spies Like Us did not get to number one. Um, but it it kind of lights the torch paper for the whole Wilburys uh, project because as the singles come out for Cloud Nine, um, you know, George, as is the, the want at the time, is, is pressed to get some kind of bonus tracks or B-sides to go with uh, uh, the single. And the, the single that's planned to come out is... Um, is it love from cloud nine and George, uh, you know, is trying to figure out how he's going to get his B side ready. And we'll tell you how he got that B side ready 
after this break. End of part one. Intermission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So in April 1988, George is in Los Angeles and he's there because... What we kind of forget is that he's also a big movie producer at this time. And there's a movie being made there uh, in production called Checking Out, which I'm sure we've all seen. Have we seen? No. 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 (laughs) It's it's one of the uh, movies from the latter days of handmade films. I think if you check Wikipedia, it it grossed something like $1,500. It's... uh, Probably something that pushed the company into the tailspin that it eventually uh, went into following on from Shanghai Surprise. Um, But he's in L.A. and um, This Is Love is due to be the third single from uh, Cloud9. I think I called it Is This Is It Love a few minutes ago. You did, you did. I wasn't wasn't, getting my squeeze and my George mixed up. I I wasn't going to correct you. (laughs) Um, So This Is Love is due to be the third single from Cloud9. And, you know, CD singles are coming into vogue and B-sides and exclusive tracks and all the rest. Um, So there's, there's an official story about what happens. And it's kind of true. But there's a little, there's maybe a few details left out, but it's, it, it, the, the, yeah. the, the official story is, oh, it's just this magically spontaneous thing. It, yes. And I mean, I think the, I think the sequence of, to, to my reading, the sequence of events is correct, but I think it's, it's the intent uh, yeah. to, to, to push this forward is, is what is never discussed. It, it, uh, it is a spot portrayed as a spontaneous, you know, we were sitting having a meal. We said we were going to do this. Then we thought, oh, I've got to go there. Then we've got to go there. And the next thing we're recording a Traveling Wilbury song. And you think there, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, yeah. So I think the the timing and the sequence of events is is, is definitely correct. Well, what but we're I trying to lay George, down is George that and, there's, yeah, there is, a, there is this notion that George wants to do a Traveling Wilburys group. He just yes. hasn't decided. And he's, this sequence of events George, consciously or unconsciously, it's a bit of a land grab for him to do this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what is the sequence of events? So supposedly uh, George and Jeff, uh, they go out for a meal with Roy Orbison. Jeff is working with Roy at this point. And um, George mentions that, you know, he has to come up with the, what he calls a seaside, a third track uh, for a 12-inch sort of CD single. And he's going to record this tomorrow. And he asks Jeff... Would he uh, come and help him with this? Now it's inconceivable that that was not <laughs> lined up. You you don't just say to Jeff Lynn, who is working on another project with Roy Orbison, sure, just you know, 
abandon that and come and work with me tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but Jeff supposedly agrees to this. Roy says, uh, you know, do you mind if I come along? If you're doing something, can I come and hang out? And yeah, absolutely. So it, the, the, the scene is uh, set. Um, and then George says uh, he needed to pick up a guitar um, because George only has one guitar. He just has and, one guitar. Um, and whose yeah, house does it happen to be in? It's it's in Tom Petty's house. What so, are the chances? Uh, you know, so... Tom Petty says, when he came by to get it, I wasn't doing anything. So I said, hey, I'll come along. And at that point, Jeff had a brainstorm and said, why don't we go to Bob's house mm. um, and record there? So it's it's all very pat. Um, mm-hmm. What George says is, you know, he then rings Bob. And in interviews, he said, you know, you can ring Bob and he won't answer the phone for two years. Um, but this time he just picked up on the first ring and we said, can we all come over and record something uh, in your garage? And he went, yeah, not, not, a, not a problem. So it's like, <laughs> it, it's, it's a bit like a Cliff Richard movie. You know, I said, let's do the show right here. It's, it's. Well, you know, one of the things, one of the threads we often pull here is that on this podcast is the serendipity of events in the Beatle universe. So maybe we're yeah. being cynical old heads to say this seems a bit unreal that it goes from, you know, whatever, 9 p.m. one evening in a restaurant and the following evening they've recorded the song that turns out to be handled <laughs> with care. And yeah. uh, but, you know, assuming that it all comes together that quickly, like in a let's do the show right here type of vibe, um, you know, they have, uh, as you say, Tom Petty flags that George has this little garage studio slash rehearsal Bob, space. Bob has a little Bob. Oh, who did I say? George, George pardon me. George. Oh dear. Bob has this um, recording studio come uh, rehearsal space in um, Malibu and uh, they should all go down there and record. Um, there's, there's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of maybe of the story being left out because Jeff knows about this studio. Jeff knows about this studio and we, we come back to the importance of Jeff having been at this studio before. The importance of Jeff is a statement I really the, like the, to the, the importance of <laughs> The importance of Jeff. But supposedly, uh, this is something that Jeff Lynn has mentioned. I've never heard anybody else mention this, but Jeff refers to the fact that he and Bill Bottrell uh, had been to this studio a few months earlier. And what he says is, we did a little song with Bob just on our own. I'm in the mood for love. Now, yeah. I, I have consulted the finest uh, Dylan uh, experts that I know on, on another podcast. Is it Rolling Pod? You shall be listening to that podcast. And this is not a song that is known about. Um, but it is the standard, it, I'm in the mood for love, simply because you're we, near me. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. There, well, we assume that this is the case. There is a, a song of a similar uh, name that turns up on the had turned up on the basement tapes, which is an old blues song. But we assume that this is a, is the standard. Mm. And this obviously is years before Dylan embarks on his Sinatra covers uh, uh, period. And you've got to wonder what was he doing with Jeff Lynn in that shed, you know, yeah. <laughs> what were they working on? What was the purpose of that? Um, was Dylan maybe in the same boat as uh, Roy Orbison and Tom Petty thinking, oh, look at, look at Jeff Lynn did for yeah. George Harrison. You know, my career is, is twisting in the wind a bit. Is, do I need some of this? 
did he realize, yeah, that, uh, you know, if, if, you know, trusting George, that Jeff would be a, you know, if George can work with him, I could work with him type thing. Yeah. It, it is possible that it is the standard because there is YouTube clips of uh, Bob doing I'm in the mood for love in 1989, which apparently he yeah, plays live, it live for yeah. the first time. So yeah. assuming it's rattling around his head, um, that might be it. Um, so, so yeah, there is this, this, unreleased, unknown Jeff and Bob collaboration that uh, predates that and that was apparently laid down in this um, this studio. So they eventually all end up going down there. And again, it comes back to this thing of, you know, the will of George trying to push it into existence because, you know, George, it's not that he's written Handle With Care, but he hasn't not written a song that turns he's... out to be quite similar to Handle With Care when he walks <laughs> in the door. Yes. Yes, he seems to arrive uh, with a song at least half written. And, yeah. and uh, you know, over the years, Jeff and Tom Petty have all, both acknowledged, you know, that this is really a George song. And, and it was sort of roughed out, uh, fleshed out in, in the studio. But this was a George Harrison song. So he comes. And again, you think it's inconceivable that they would just turn up. Uh, with all of that talent and not have something specific. You know, George Harrison doesn't, if there's one thing we know about George Harrison is he is very meticulous when he gets into a studio. He's not an improviser. He's not someone that that just uh, sort of pulls solos from from thin air. He works through. So he comes with something to work on. Um, They arrive at the studio and the studio is not in good shape. Uh, The engineer says, uh, you know, Dylan's studio was just a pile of equipment that Dave Stewart had sold them. Uh, It hadn't ever really been used. It was semi-connected. There was a lot of work involved on the part of the engineer to get this to work. Now, again, bear in mind, we've already said that Jeff and this engineer have been in this studio before. Mm. Yeah, so they should have known. They should have known. So why would you suggest going to work in a studio that was going to take a while to set up uh, and wasn't really the best environment unless you were trying to get Bob on board? And my theory for what it's worth is that perhaps the only person that didn't know um, <laughs> they were they were in a band that day was Bob was Bob Dylan. Um, yeah. And the, the, the George was sort of saying, right, you know what, we get we, we can do this and we can kind of bounce Bob Dylan into being in our band. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think everybody else was on board and knew what was happening, but perhaps Bob was blindsided by this slightly. Well, in a 1990 interview, yeah, George kind of confirms, you know, by saying, you know, uh, I started the tune the next morning. I got a few chords. Tom and Jeff picked me up. We went over to Bob's. We sat in his lawn and wrote the song, the music to it. We went in and put it down, just a machine and some acoustics. I thought, you know, we might as well get them all playing. And we went out there and wrote uh, the words. And, you know, Dylan is kind of wondering, you know, what, what are you doing, George? And George says, oh, we're just going to write it. George, you know, like as if Bob Dylan doesn't know spontaneity. Yeah. And, um, you know, Dylan says, how could you do such a thing? And George looks at a, a two reel tape box from Ampex that says, handle with care. Handle with care. That's, that's the legend. And, uh, you know, Jeff Lynn says, you know, it's, you know, five microphones, strumming guitars in a semicircle, all double tracked. Uh, you know, you get a shimmery, thick sound, a thick skiffle. That's the that wall of acoustics is the the Jeff Lynne yeah. um, baton into the pa- charts for the next yes, few years. Pa- pa- patented sound, yeah. Um, so they're apparently all throwing around lines to to get this song um, finished, but it it does. Again, you kind of wonder what each of the participants was thinking at this point, because they're supposed to be there for 
you know, this B-side project and maybe just having a day out and having a lark. And, you yeah. know, maybe they're not thinking about, you know, who's, whose name is going to be on the songwriting or the publishing or any of that kind of stuff. And if it's George, that's fine. We've all had a nice day out kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but they are all throwing lines out. So Tom Petty says he throws out, uh, what, Oh, the Sweet Smell of Success, which yeah. is possibly one of the funniest lines in it when you think about it. Because yeah, they're literally yeah. describing all the horrors of being famous uh, in in the song. It's, it's yes, it's this notion that um, you know that after they got the rhythm track, Bob fires up the barbecue. So you've got Bob Dylan barbecuing for Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne, and George Harrison, and George sitting with a pen and paper saying, "Okay, give me some, give me some words," and everybody's just throwing out lines. So uh, you know, I think everybody knew what they were going to do i think the other yes. four this, this is what's going to happen but as soon as you start recording and people get solo vocal lines yes um it's clear that this is not and cannot be a george harrison track um yeah well one of the things i love about the notion of this day is we, we've kind of shown that there's threads between george and jeff and bob and tom and all this but there hasn't been a a, a bob uh, and roy kind of intersection no. yet and that seems to happen no. on this day and you know again amateur psychologist time you look at that dynamic of the Wilburys the, the the dynamic between Bob and Roy is fantastic and I think Jeff said it brilliantly because he said you know we have the world's greatest singer and the world's greatest lyricist in the one band yeah. for the first time and I think he's he's totally right there um that there's such a mutual respect between Bob and Roy that I think out of all the people in the band, Bob is the most, uh, you know, the one that he's most in awe of is that he's singing with Roy Orbison, that he's in a band with Roy Orbison. And Roy Orbison, I think, simultaneously doesn't believe his luck that he gets to hang out with Bob Dylan. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think it's it's Dylan's respect for Roy Orbison that is the key yeah. to making that first day work. Because Dylan is notoriously, he notoriously inhabits the character of Bob Dylan. Um, so he he just projects that constantly, and everybody is in awe of Bob Dylan. You know, the Bruce Springsteen, uh, you know, says, you know, Dylan walks into the room, no matter who else is in the room, everybody turns to look at Dylan. Mm. Um, so I think the fact that Dylan is not, in one sense, the kind of top dog here, you know, he's not the most famous person in the room. He's not the most influential person in the room. He is slightly in awe. Oh, yes. he's very respectful of Roy Orbison, shifts that dynamic. And you think it must be a long time since Dylan was in that position. Hmm. But he must be happy to be in that position because it's a, a new sensation in a way, or it's a yeah, I good mean, place it, to it be. Takes, takes, takes the pressure off, off yeah. him. Um, and I mean, Dylan must be very conscious as well in that sort of company that his voice is is the kind of least uh, Im impressive thing there. You know, his voice is, you know, you've seen him at that We Are The World uh, yeah. recording session. And you think he's, he's singing with Stevie Wonder. He's singing with, uh, so suddenly to be in a room with, with Roy Orbison, um, must be a very different experience. I think. I think sometimes you know, Dylan gets short shift because people think you know he might be not engaged or you know dialing it in sometimes, particularly at this point in the eighties. But that's yeah. not really true. And as the as the Wilburys evolves, Dylan's very much on board, and he's as part of it as as, as anybody else. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to that when we talk about the main album sessions. Uh, you know, Tom Petty does seem to 
you know, in subsequent interviews reinforce that, you know, it does seem to happen spontaneously uh, or as spontaneous as these things can be. I can't imagine how it happened, he said, because it did. So he, he does describe a certain magic to it. And Roy Orbison's I'm So Tired of Being Lonely, I think is Roy's contribution just to, because they're all wondering, how do we get, we have to have Roy it, sing a line. He can't not sing a line in this song. That's it. They say, you know, there's no point having this song. And it's a very kind of standard uh, skiffle sound until Roy comes in with that. Mm. And they wrote that specifically to make to make best use um, of, of his voice. And uh, so I think, I mean, I, I do think in one sense it's spontaneous that they're sort of writing and they're throwing out these lines. But I do think that George, as you said earlier, is just willing this into existence. Yeah. Um, and that the person who is last to come on board is Bob Dylan. And I think that George's motivation for doing this is at least in part as a kind of reaching out to Bob Dylan, um, mm-hmm. you, you know, to say, look, this is, you, you know, you're Bob Dylan. You, you, you know, you can uh, sort of to remind him of, of who he is and what he's capable of. And um, at a time when Dylan was really his commercial stock. And I think his his own sort of belief and his, his abilities was at a low point. Hmm. Um, so Tom Petty describes how they did nearly all of it that night. The vocals, Jeff Lynn played the drums. Um, but the next day, actually, they're in a proper studio and it seems to be mainly George and Jeff who are in studio the next day uh, with a few other folks trying to actually put a polish on it. Yeah. So, again, they've recorded this at Dylan's house. And, you know, the legend is we recorded the song at Dylan's house, but they didn't really. That, that This is a sort of rough uh, run through the song at, at, at Dylan's house. They, they, you know, they've got Bob's vocals. They got there. But then what happens is the next day they go into a professional studio and George promptly re-records uh, his vocal yeah and and they start applying the uh the patented jeff lynn magic the non-stop tinkering of jeff lynn so so they have to they they then but this is this is you know i i will give a credit to jeff lynn for this this point you know this is what he excels at he can yeah. take this kind of rough material and he can polish it up whether he kind of sometimes doesn't know when to stop polishing it that <laughs> is maybe my, my my issue is sometimes it's a little he, he loses the spontaneity but um uh, you know so they need to record a guitar solo so you know you've got george harrison there so what do you do you call mike campbell of the heartbreakers to come yeah. and play the guitar so Tom Petty is, is there and Mike Campbell goes down and he he tries to make a few passes at a guitar solo without losing his nerve. But eventually he says to George, you know, why don't you just do your slide guitar? Yeah. Because, you know, it's it's that. It's true. Yeah, you're George Harrison. So, yeah, he, he, he records the fact that he's playing these solos. He's trying to, he sounds a bit something that Clapton would do. And he said yeah. he just, he leaves, sets his guitar down and George just walks in and picks it up. All the settings are the same and George plays the slide solo. And there you go. So and then Mike the other Campbell bit of, nearly no, a Wilbury. Nearly a Wilbury. Did Mike Wilbury, did he get a name? But of course, the final bit of magic, you always need a bit of King Crimson, don't you? In, in these occasions. We're, we're slowly working. We're working towards this King Crimson crossover. Yeah. Uh, so Ian Wallace, who was in King Crimson in the early 70s, went around Island's Time, is it? Uh, yeah. He was yep, in there. That's it. That that's he, it. Does some, uh, he does some drumming or some overdubbing of drumming because Jeff's drumming can be a bit uh, straightforward. Yeah. Th- the 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 previous track was really Jeff and a drum machine. So uh, Ian Wallace, um, by this stage, he was sort of pretty in demand session drummer, and uh, I think I'm pretty sure I saw Ian Wallace touring with Bob Dylan in '84. Some okay. Bob Dylan 
person will, will at Slane, possibly. Uh, that was Ian Wallace, I think. Um, so he comes in. He's also married to uh, Jenny Boyd, Patty Boyd's oh, okay. sister. So he's some kind of distant ex-in-law of George's. He'd be like somewhere. an ex, ex-brother-in-law or something. Yeah, George Jeez. will have had some, some name for that. Um, so they've, you know, certainly after the second day, the song is finished and George puts it into his pocket, uh, has it on a tape. And I guess the first person outside of the circle to hear it is uh, Warner Brothers chief Mo Austin, who yeah. is obviously, you know, has been steering Cloud9 to the success that it had and is he, he he must you know have cartoon dollar bills in his eyes when he hears yeah. <laughs> this song for the first time because he's not keen on having it out as a b-side no i mean i i, I can perfectly understand the the the, the ching of cash registers that he's hearing <laughs> because and as i say once as soon as you have uh that vocal line from from well particularly from Roy Orbison but but they each have solo vocal lines you think this can't possibly be a George Harrison song and it mm. cannot possibly be tucked away as the spare it's not even the b-side it's it's the third track on on a single so he immediately says um you know no we can't we can't put this this out and um this according to Tom Petty is the point at which um the the, the, the sort of the idea of a band Yes. suddenly appears but we know that it's over a year since george had the name had the guitar had the merch had the guitar picks um all of this so this is again it would be interesting to to find out if mo austin knew in advance that mm. the recording session was taking place you know that had george sort of tipped him the wink that you know i'm gonna try and get these guys together and because again they're on different they're all on different labels so there is going to be uh, there are going to be contractual issues um yeah. here um it just but, but it seems so often, it seems so fanciful though that if if you know even like we were saying how you know the the rockland interview they kind of glance over the traveling wilburys but even if george said to mo austin yeah i'm gonna put together a super group in some ways super groups weren't fashionable at that time anyway people weren't no. really calling out for them and as we said you know there's this odd wobble of you know 60s acts trying to find their relevance in the mid 80s so it mightn't have seemed like a, a you know a, a winner on paper anyway irrespective no. of how difficult it would have been to do but uh, and there's a there's a, another world where george gets together with the four of them records a b-side it's not very good and it yes. just becomes a curio and a footnote that hey did you know this b-side has bob dylan on it blah 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 that yeah. uh, that would be discussed on a different type of podcast um but you know there is definitely a bit of magic going on that, you know, there's, there's a, the sports people call it in the zone. George is in the zone. He's having hits. Yep. He's having popularity. He's having a bit of a Midas touch, um, which he hasn't had in a, in a, in a, in a little while. And when Mo Austin hears that song, I think it's the quality of the song itself that actually makes the thing happen. I think, I think that's, that's true. That's true. And I mean, one of the things about Warner brothers and about Mo Austin is there, you know, Mo Austin famously came up with the, the the rubric back in the day in the early seventies uh, for Warner Brothers, which was um, let's stop trying to make hits, let's just make good songs and turn those good songs into hits. You know, let's mm. not follow slavishly what's happening. Happening. So Warner Brothers is a great kind of um, home for for this type of thing. Um, they kind of give give artists the leeway. Um, and this is the point at which I'm going to plug uh, Sonic Boom. 
I don't know if you've yes. read this book by Peter Ames Collin. It's a fantastic book. It's it's not so much a, I suppose, a music book as a book about the music business. Mm. Um, little little bit of content. Uh, I'm not going to sell it as a Beatles book. There's a little bit of content about George and Mo Austin and his relationship, but it's a it's a fantastic book. Um, very readable. Um, just about how you run. Um, a record business. It's on my list. Yeah, Sonic Boom. I, I do. I do intend to read it. Um, yeah, and there's there's another interesting uh, thing that's happening in the background here, which is Tom Petty is signed to MCA, and he's never really been particularly happy with his label. And Mo Austin is trying to snare Tom Petty. Uh, Tom Petty doesn't make the switch until Wildflowers in '94, but famously yeah. he signed his deal years in advance before Into the Great Wide Open came out, uh, and actually yeah. even before Full Moon Fever came out. So Tom Petty is being sired by Mo Austin at this point as well. So he's he has that in his mind. Yes. And supposedly what happened there, he signed that deal. And by the time uh, uh, sort of his previous, uh, his existing contract ran out, the deal that he had signed with Warners was not particularly good in terms of royalty rates. So Mo Austin just renegotiated that for him. Yeah, so, he just tore again, it up and said, I'll give you whatever yeah, you want. Yeah, yeah. Warner, Warners have that, had that uh, uh, kind of ethos, yeah. um, you know. Um, so uh, it's at this point when Mo Austin hears Handle With Care that, you know, finally the penny drops that, you know, we it's like a test case Handle With Care that, look, we know we yeah. can put these people together. We know we can create a, a good song. And according to Tom Petty, this is where George and Jeff decide to realize the, the band idea. Uh, and they phone Tom first uh, and then they phone Dylan and Dylan agrees to to join. So they, they've obviously fall happy with the experience. Yeah. And then that night, uh, George, Jeff and Tom go to Anaheim. These, these, these guys are really, they have a lot of free time to just do last minute <laughs> things. <laughs> it's um, the life of a millionaire rock star. We'll just, get there one day. We'll get there one I, day. I mean, I mean, like really, if I was George's manager, he'd have been touring Cloud Nine into the ground. But anyway, um, Jeff, George and Tom go over to Anaheim to see Roy Orbison, who just happens to be performing in town at the Celebrity Theatre and they recruit him um, after what Petty describes as an extraordinary show. And they were all like little kids, excited that he's in our band and we can't believe Boys it. And isn't it band. great? Boys I mean, that's um, fair enough. Well, yeah. You know that, that, that uh, there was a slight argument about what the band was going to be called? Oh, really? Because, what were they, um, was there a because, short list? Uh, no, no. Dylan, Dylan at one point was very, uh, very insistent it should be called Roy and the Boys. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, that just goes to show Bob's. Yeah. You know, deference to to Roy and yeah. um, Roy and the boys would have been would have been um, funny too. Um, so you know they they are they 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 decide to just go for it. And so the the next thing that they need to do is to get the dates down and get the location down and figure out how and when and why they're going to do it. And uh, uh, there's a couple of people involved in this, but everyone loves Dave Stewart, don't they? They do. Like he he has um, <laughs> he uh, is is he, is he not the new Jeff Lynne? He's sort of like a he 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 is a Jeff Lynne type figure, and certainly in the eighties, um, there is a Dave Stewart Tom Petty overlap because when Tom uh, was working on the album Southern Accents with the Heartbreakers, he went off one night with Dave Stewart, and on his own made up "Don't Come Around Here No More," yeah. which becomes this kind of signature mid-80s Tom and the Heartbreakers hit. And the Heartbreakers weren't particularly happy that it's Dave Stewart and it's a bit different to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It, it is a bit different. I do love that song and I do love the video, but it really punches a hole in the whole concept idea of that Southern accent. 
nonsense. Oh yeah, album. it it's it, 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 it well punches a hole is also what happened to Tom Petty during Southern Accents, isn't that when he yes, punched a hole in yes, the wall, broke his hand, the and the yeah. whole album went off the rails? Um, but it is a great song, and Dave Stewart's in the video for "Don't Come Around Here No More," which um, Irish listeners will remember from MTUSA back in the day. Um, but uh, Dave Stewart is one of these. Uh, bit like Jeff, one of these kind of laid back emollients who doesn't mind sitting at a um, uh, a producer's desk for hours on end, uh, you yeah, know, doing all the dirty there, work and making everyone believe they're having a good time. But there was, there, I mean, there was a point where he he was just producing everybody, you know, he, he was working with everybody in the way that Jeff did. So he sort yeah. of picked up a little bit, uh, you know, the, 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 the jobs that Jeff couldn't take on, Dave was there. So uh, Dave Stewart, um, offers his property. It's not really a studio, but it's basically a an, an outhouse in his mansion, yeah. in the grounds of his mansion to record <laughs> in. The Bel Air mansion. Yeah. yeah. And if you if you if you've seen the 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 little documentary that comes with the uh the the, the Wilbury's sort of C D DVD uh set that came out, you know, it's it's a it's it's a beautiful house from the outside, but inside it's it's pretty basic. Mm. Um, and again, the engineer, I mean, you've got to feel sorry for these engineers. Um, uh, this, it was Don Smith, who was Tom Petty's regular engineer, who was in Montserrat with Keith Richards, got the call to come back because they had a 10-day window to record this album yeah. uh, before Dylan, Dylan, or at least to get Dylan's vocals and his contribution down uh, because he was going off on his never-ending tour was just about to begin. Um, it is funny that this is the start of the never-ending tour. This was the last yeah. thing he did before the never-ending tour began. Isn't that right? Yes. Timeline-wise? Pretty much. I mean, Bob Bob would say, oh, I should have I should have the sleeve notes. But, you know, he had things like the Temple in Flames tour was the one with Tom Petty <laughs> and the Heartbreakers. And then this just becomes known as the never-ending tour because he just doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, but there are sleeve notes to an album where Dylan says, that's not true. And he just lists all these ridiculous... Um, uh, tour names. names for his tour <laughs> names, but um, but yeah, he's basically not stopped touring uh, until the pandemic hit. Um, if you do watch um, that uh, that video uh, documentary that comes to the Trouting Wilburys, there's a guy with his back turned in the documentary wearing a, an expensive winos t-shirt the entire time, yes. and I assume that's Don Smith who's been pulled I, from the Keith Richards store. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. the Keith Richards sessions. I, that must be him. I, I suppose we're just lucky that Keith didn't get on the plane with him and and, and get crashed the uh, the Wilbury sessions. He but, might have uh, derailed things a little bit because yeah, they have the location which is the um, the, uh, the the outhouse, <laughs> the comfortable outhouse. <laughs> it's of, a very of, it's a very well appointed outhouse. But, but you watch yeah. that video, yeah, it's a, they're recording in a kitchen and there's a there's a separate kind of vocal booth and um, you know mixing desk room. With, uh, with the, with with carpets on the wall, so they, yeah. this guy, Don Smith is saying nothing worked. So again, this is like nothing worked in Bob's Dylan's studio. Nothing works in Dave Stewart. He said we had to get carpets and hang them on the walls to to sort of soundproof it. Uh, you know, it was crazy. Uh, so they have the location, they have the dates, which is 10 days in May 88, limited by the, the travelling uh, of um, of Bob Dylan. And uh, they also tap the shoulder of Jim Keltner as well, who's going to yes. get involved in the project uh, on the drums because, uh, you know, we all know that Jeff loves a click track, but uh, sometimes yeah. <laughs> you need sometimes somebody to replace to be, the yeah. click. Yeah. It has to be a human being. And so they uh, are all pointed in the right direction. They have their timeline and they're ready to go. And that's where we're going to press 
pause because, uh, you know, we've still got a lot to talk about in terms of the Travelling Wilburys project, how they recorded, what they did next and how it all how it all rolls out. But we're going to discuss that in part two of our episode uh, on the Travelling Wilburys. So, um, yeah, there's, there's still a lot more road to travel with them, isn't there? There is a lot, to, lot to learn. There's a lot to talk about. Um, so yes, so maybe in the meantime you can go off and listen to your traveling Wilburys records. We always want to drive you back to the records and uh, discuss it online in the usual places on Twitter at Beatles Pod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, um, our website www.nothingisrealpod.com, which has all the links to how to download YouTube links, playlists, all sorts of fun stuff is there, and how to uh, how to subscribe and support the podcast going forward. But for now, I'm Justin Wilbury. I'm Perry Mason Wilbury. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.